Thanks for making good afternoon. It's uh, Niall Boylan with you for the next hour or so. Now, we always try to bring you different stories, and some of them sad, some of them fun, but this one is no fun, let me tell you, certainly for the person involved. Can you imagine spending 22 years of your life in prison? Now, not just in prison, but on death row for something that you didn't actually do. What could that actually be like? Nick Garris joins me. Nick is a man who did exactly that for 22 years of his life. Nick, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Neil. And it's nice to catch up to you again, brother. Yeah, and I'm glad to see you're doing well, by the way. I'm glad to see everything is good for you again. And I know you're doing a bit of moving around, and we'll talk about that towards the end of the interview. But for those who haven't heard your story, and many people haven't heard your story and can't even contemplate what it might have been like, to spend 22 years of your life in jail for something you didn't actually do. Let's go right back in time, if we can, if that's not... And I, and I hate bringing this up again, because I know for you it's probably quite traumatic thinking about all of this, because it all brings it back in your head. I mean, what sort of kid were you? Were you... Were you I, I know you got into a bit of trouble when you were a teenager. I mean, what did that stem from? Was it a bad background? It's... At this point, sharing my story about my development no longer causes me any kind of pain or suffering. It's become cathartic, actually, in a lot of ways because I've managed to use what has happened to me to help so many people. So imagine, if you will, that you're a seven-year-old child like I was, and you had the misfortune of being attacked by a person older than you who sexually assaults you and beats your head in with a rock or an object and leaves you with a brain disorder. That was the beginning of my development years from the age of seven onward. I did all of the disastrous things that someone in that situation can do in keeping it a secret and allowing myself to be bonded to my attacker in a very dark way. And it destroyed all of my self-confidence, my self-appreciation, and I became a sincerely destroyed young person full of drugs mm. and anger. And I, I was going to get to that. Yeah. So you obviously, as you got older as a teenager, you developed an addiction to drugs, alcohol. You did all the things that a teenager shouldn't do, I suppose. And obviously kind of got hooked up with the wrong people who were willing to you know, provide you with this stuff. Yeah, by the time I was 17 years old, I was shooting methamphetamine. At the age of 19, my friends tried to murder me because I was off the rails. And they tried to rob me and murder me because I was a danger like that. Like They couldn't just steal my money. They feared me so much. And so it ended up being part of the, the culminating story of how I ended up on death row because the, one of the gentlemen that robbed me I thought he had died of a drug overdose. When I was arrested falsely for driving a stolen car and a the, police officer made up a story about me. This is in 1981. Him. Yes. So the police officer took out his gun when he stopped you. You guys were in a stolen car. He stopped you. This is 1981. And, and he took and, out his, his gun. Yeah. And this was the whole backstory to that incident is that just previous to that, about a year and a half before that, my own friends beat me in the head with a pistol, rolled me up in a rug, and drove me around in a pickup truck. And I had so much hatred for this one guy 
that when I was arrested by a police officer and falsely charged, I was so incensed by what they had done to me by falsely saying that I beat the police officer up and I took his gun off him and I kidnapped him. I did all these horrible things that I actually made up a lie using that gentleman who kidnapped me. And this is crazy how it all comes back to you. In my vengeful, angry, distorted mind of not caring anything about my freedom and then squandering it and wanting it back so desperately, I made up a terrible lie. I told the police that the man I thought was dead, the man who kidnapped me and robbed me, had committed this murder and they told me about it. This is the murder Initially, of uh, this is the murder of Linda May Craig, who was raped and killed in and around the same time yeah. in that December. Yeah, so I only knew about this from reading it in a newspaper in my jail cell, making up the story about it. Initially, the police believed me, and they went looking for this guy. When they found out it wasn't him that had died, but his brother, and uh, he was still well alive and had an alibi. They immediately returned to me and told me it was obvious I had concocted the story about the murder of Mrs. Craig so that I could confess. And then they went into my childhood. They went into what it was that I was a drug addict and loser for. And they brought up all my psychiatric records as a child and shamed and humiliated me. And then they did some horrible things to me now. They put me in a prison and they made it look like I was an informant in front of a prison gang. And when that happened, I was attacked for a week solid. And so I couldn't take it anymore and I hung myself. I was cut down by a prison officer and I was told that I wasn't allowed to cheat the state out of my punishment. And thus began my journey of 23 years in solitary confinement. What was it like to stand before a judge and I don't know whether they still do it in America when they sentence somebody to death, uh, that or even to life in prison. They, they do they still do that thing where they put a black cap on their head or a black you know this kind of hat on their head and they sent it. I don't know if they still do that. They used to do it many years ago, but the, but to hear the the word sentenced to death, what was that for something you didn't do and and you knew you didn't do it. Ironically, I was found not guilty of all my original charges that I made a story up for. So they were extremely angry and they were very determined to get a conviction. They began my trial right up against the Fourth uh, of July holiday weekend, knowing that the jury would be under pressure to come back with a, a verdict before the holiday. I still to this day remember the day that I was condemned in the eyes of the jury, it was because they had shown a series of photographs and they culminated with the image of the victim being found in the snow and two little boys had found her body. And as they ran from the figure in the snow, they looked like they had created the image of an angel laying there because the mm -hmm. photograph was from an elevated uh, position. Yeah. And then there was this huge electrical storm and they found me guilty and the courthouse was struck by a bolt of lightning. The sheriff jumped up like I had planned an escape. They pulled guns on me and they took me up into this big room. And as I sat up there, 20 years old, just turned 21, 
I knew I wasn't going to die. I knew that they just found me guilty and they were going to sentence me to death. But all I heard was go look them in the eye. And I went back down and I did. I went back down in the room and no one could look me in the eye. And at 21 years of age, you were still a young man. You were facing a long time in jail because you'd be very familiar, of course, with the prison system that when you're sentenced to death in America, it doesn't literally mean you're going to be taken away straight away and sentenced to death, that you'll spend a long time literally on death row as many prisoners have spent years on death row. Some have been exonerated. Some have just never been sentenced to death. Uh, and many were sentenced to death. Did you did you fear that, by the way, the fear of dying? Was there a fear of dying? Or at that point in your life, had you kind of given up? This thing was so big, I had a certainty that it was beyond just me. I had one duty when I went to death row. I had to try and survive a unit where I wasn't allowed to speak, where they were going to beat me if I spoke. And I had to endure torture that was going to be monumental. When something that big is on top of you, you don't think in the terms that you were describing. Mm -hmm. It's not a luxury in those ways. Every day is a battle for the will to hold on to your sanity. And because I wasn't allowed to speak or had nothing in my cell initially, I just kept playing out what happened at the trial. How people laughed and jeered at my mother and father. How they all made fun of me. It's all I could think about. Did you get Did you get to say anything to the victim? I'm sure the victim's family were in court. Um, Linda McCraig's family. Did you get to speak to them at any stage? Because I'm assuming they make some sort of victim impact statement or whatever it happens to be at the time. I don't know if they did that at the time. But did you get to say anything to them like... I'm sorry, I didn't do this, or did you get to speak to them at all? They tried to hold a penalty phase hearing to determine whether I deserved to live or die. I got up on the stand and I reiterated, I didn't kill anyone. Please don't put my mother up there and humiliate me about my childhood. I know I had a horrible childhood. But I couldn't help and offer any condolences to anyone because it was all hollow. You don't have any stature. You're a 21-year-old kid who looks like he could have done it. I shared the same blood type with the murderer, B-positive. Serology was all we had in 1982. So in the saddest of all ways, the family began to seriously believe that I had killed their loved one and I had to live with that. And you, you mentioned your mother a few minutes ago. She obviously, well, you're her son and you'll always be her son. And, you know, she would have backed you up and she believed you. Um, it must have been very difficult for you to watch your mom go through that and go through watching you up on a stand being accused of such a horrible crime and then to be sentenced to death. That must have been so difficult on her. He was serving me dinner at the time of the crime and her words where there's no possible way my son committed this crime while I was feeding him. You could say my son was a thief and a liar or whatever you want to say about my son. But my son didn't kill this woman because I was feeding him. It's not possible. She went to the crime scene. She drew diagrams. She wrote thousands of letters. 
no one cared. And I screwed it all up. I escaped from death row in 1985, and I was on the FBI's most wanted list. And for 25 days, I was up there trying my best not to get my brains blowed out by the police. And so how I had did, an How did you escape? I, I know you were, you were being transported. Um, and this is, I think you were being transported to Florida, if I remember rightly. Or you were, yes, sorry, you were being transported, and but you were arrested again in Florida. So how did you actually escape? I was being transported to court for a new trial hearing. I was excited. It was February 15th, 1985, the coldest day of the year in America on the East Coast. And I stopped to use the restroom after being in a vehicle for five hours just outside of Philadelphia. The officer who escorted me over to the cubicle 25 yards away from the car was being fueled, held the door for me. And one of the best points about telling me someone like you is I was wearing eyeglasses at that time. Yeah. Just like you are, if you came out of a warm car into sub-zero temperatures, the first thing that happens is your eyeglasses fog up. Yeah. Then you go into a cubicle and you stand there looking down as you urinate and your breathing causes more of the fog sensation all around your eyeglasses. Get it? You have handcuffs yeah. on. You can't wipe your eyes. Okay? Yep. Yeah. You then yeah. turn around and you follow the officer's direction back towards him. He's holding the door for you. You duck your head down. Now, that blast of air comes back at you, Niall, and you start trotting right back to the car. You see the outline of the officer and the car, but that's about all you can see through your eyeglasses. It's really hard. But you're trying, and you're coming right towards him. Then he turns around, and he pulls his guns out, and he fires the shot right at your face. Bang! That's how it happened. And you just ran. I just ran. I turned around, he fired the second shot, and I hit the ground. I jumped up. I was running right towards a restaurant like I was going to jump through the plate glass window, and I ran around that building, and I turned right. Then I turned right again, and I turned right, and I had hid behind the car I just got out of. I was about 25 yards away from the back of the police vehicle where I was in, laying on the ground, vomiting from the exertion and the shock and trauma of what I just went through. Now, when I tell people this happened, I can't tell you how fast it was. It was just, I was running back to the car. I had fogged up eyeglasses on. I was doing as I was told. The officer left me to go pee. That was my problem. He was 68 years old and he said he had a bladder the size of a walnut. He made a tactical decision to go back into the urinal and urinate before he pissed himself. And it almost cost me my life. And did they leave then because they, they thought you were gone, but you, you were actually only about 25 yards away. So how did it end up that you managed to escape them? Because obviously you're handcuffed as well, which made it more difficult. I laid there in the ground for a good 15 minutes listening to them get their story together and yell at one another. They were so geeked up because shots fired, officers just police sirens of every manner were on their way. They were trying to direct traffic of where they had last seen me running right down a major highway. They didn't know I turned right back around and was hiding behind their police car because they're not going to direct people to look around the car. They're going somewhere else. That was the tactic we learned in Philadelphia in the ghetto. 
So at what point, Nick, did you decide when you were there and you could see them getting their story straight and you knew there was more police on the way, you had two choices. You give yourself up or you run and get out of there. So what made you made the choice of getting out of there, even though you were handcuffed as well? What made you make that choice? I was so freaked out that I knew I had to make a decision. After I stopped vomiting, I took my eyeglasses off and I bit the rubber bit off of the earpiece and I stuck it in the handcuffs and I took my handcuffs off. I put the handcuffs in my pocket. I looked and there was a flag on a building. So I knew it was a municipal building or a police building. And I was going to go hide there and wait and see what I could find out or think to do. This was already shots fired. You don't put your hands up. I'm sentenced to death. I can tell you what the bulletin said. Escape, extremely dangerous, convicted death row prisoner. Um, do not attempt to capture, shoot on sight. So when you're in that situation, they fire at you. They get you on the ground. Then they talk to you. You don't get a second chance. So... I hid behind the police station and then I got so cold because again, it was sub-zero temperatures. I tried to get out of there and they saw me and they called in a helicopter and for the next four hours of my life, I was chased by this enormous beast that kept coming down with his blades every chance he got to try and chop my head off. And it, it culminated in the craziest way. I was up against a 10-foot fence. I'm running towards this huge fence. There's no way I'm going to climb a 10-foot fence wearing prison shoes and a shirt and trousers. I can't believe my luck. This guy's right behind me. But the thing is, he's kicking up so much snow. He's losing me, but he's seeing me. He knows he's right above me. I slalom on my belly when I fall. And I didn't know that the snow piles had caused a gapping under the fence at the bottom. I slid underneath this 10-foot fence and I went 240 feet down the side of a railroad embankment on my face and didn't get a scratch. Got up, shook all the snow off, and I was standing in a railroad tracks. And I turned left and I started walking for five miles. And I made it to Fraser, Pennsylvania, where I stole a 1965 Mustang and I drove to New York City. So you, you lasted approximately, as far as I know, in and around 20 days. Was it 20 days you, you were gone for? You escaped for? I was on the, yeah, I was on the run for 25 days. 25 so days. on March right. 20th, I turned myself in. In Volusia County, Florida, I was going to just walk away, but I couldn't anymore. And why, why, did, you, why did you turn yourself in? You were tired of looking over your shoulder, obviously. There's no human articulation of words that can make you understand the pressure I was under at the age of 24 on the run from death row for killing a woman I never met in my life. Oh I, my God, they all, I, I was imagine. so, I was so sure I was going to embarrass myself. I said enough and I turned myself back in. And when you were put back into prison again, obviously you now had a charge of trying to escape from jail as well on top of everything else. So, I mean, what was prison life like? Is it like we see on TV? I mean, prisons in America don't look like pretty places. 
Uh, it's privately run. They're penitentiaries. They're literally six foot cells. Do do you get they used to that? Yeah, do you get used to that after a while? Does it become your life and you just get used to it? Or is it always just like hell? They put me on death row in Florida where there was no matches in the whole East unit. Prisoners were manufacturing electric shotguns and blowing each other's heads off. I was literally 180 yards from Ted Bundy for the next eight months listening to his little diatribes in life and complaints. I went from that kind of situation where I was in the Pennsylvania prison system at a time where it was brutal. I had to go into cages and fight other men and harm them for no other purpose than the amusement of the officers involved. When you say you were only a few hundred yards from Ted Bundy. Did you ever get to meet Ted Bundy, by the way? Yeah, unfortunately, yes, I did meet him because he was going to sell me hope and get me out of going back to Pennsylvania, where he used to originally be from. And when he found out that I was an escapee going back to Pennsylvania, he signed us both up for the law library and tried to encourage me to listen to his wisdom of how he could defeat the system because he was so bright. And before he got a shout off, I told him to, you know, shove it up his ass mm -hmm. that I didn't get off on killing little girls and blaming my bad mommy into it. He lost his fucking mind and started spitting at me and screaming in all these biblical terms. And I laughed at him until the guards beat him up. And at what point then did you get to, I, I look, every prisoner says they're innocent. Everybody knows that. You know, and and of course, no, you, just probably, you probably felt like you were shouting into the darkness by saying you you know you were innocent because everybody says they're innocent, I suppose. Until that's I, I didn't tell anybody I was innocent. Why would I do that to myself? Mm. I didn't go around telling people I was innocent. What are you crazy? No, you don't do that. I was in the hardest level five institutions in America before there was a Pelican Bay in California came from Pennsylvania's Huntington State Prison, the only prison ever condemned by the United Nations for its active practices of torture. You don't tell people in that situation you're innocent. You know how many predators I was around? They were waiting for someone sweet and innocent to go ahead and open up about how they didn't kill somebody so that they could tear them apart. So that's so if you said something like that, it shows a weak side. In other words, you can never show weakness. Never. I had to be harder than the murderers. That must have been so tough, Nick, over all those years. It's bad enough to want to, to have to do that for a short period of time, maybe over a couple of weeks or months, but to have to do it for such a long period of time to kind of I have this. I so much. You know. I read all of the world's religions. Mm. I got so angry at God. I decided I was going to go ahead and do this investigation. So I read literally the Quran, Torah, about everything, Sanskrit, all of it. After three years, because I was angry that they beat me for escaping, I'm sitting there having just finished Taoism and Zen Buddhism. And 
I get a newspaper in 1988, and it's about DNA. And right at that moment, when I read that, I knew there was a reason I had read all of the world's religions. I was holding the key to my own freedom in my hand because of one thing. Wasn't my DNA in that woman's body, on her underwear, were inside the murderer's gloves that were left at the crime scene. And if that was true and this science could prove it, I was going to step forward and I was. I was the very first man in the United States in 1988 to seek DNA testing to prove my innocence. So the, the third round of DNA that came back proved that there were two unidentified men responsible for the death of Miss Craig and your DNA wasn't even there. They also found a second woman's epilel cells from her vaginal area. And I'm horrified to think that this man or these men did other murders. They, those men have never been identified, obviously. Um, but, no. but, but one thing was for sure, the DNA proved that it wasn't you and that you weren't at the scene of the crime. So you couldn't have been responsible for her rape and her murder. And when that, I don't know whether that comes in a letter form, if somebody handed it to you and you were obviously in jail at the time, what was that moment? What was that moment like when suddenly you think I'm going to be believed? What, what was that moment like? The most bittersweet moment of my life. I get on the phone. I wasn't expecting a call. It was July 1st, 2003. July 1st, 1982, I was sentenced to die. I was always aware of my anniversary of which day I was sentenced to die. July 1st, 2003 was different though. When I was handed the phone, I got on the uh, line to a attorney who began by rote reading off to me the results that just came in from Dr. Edwards Bake DNA Laboratory in California, okay. affirming that the DNA found inside the killer's gloves that were left inside the victim's automobile with the doors locked and the lights on was matched further by DNA inside of her underwear by the same person followed by more DNA results of a second unknown male number one with a completed profile. None of that matched me, he said, and then launched into his own disbelief for many times, joining in with the office mirth of laughing about me pushing for DNA, despite the obvious fact that they thought I was guilty. Mm. I hung the phone up that night. I had about seven minutes left of my phone call time. I quickly reconnected to my mother's home and I began relating to her the good news that I just shared with you about the DNA results. She told me she had to cut me off and stop me right there as much as it was great news and she was happy that I was getting my life back. She couldn't deal with that right then because my older brother, Michael, who was an alcoholic who had had trauma from falling off the roof at the age of 18, was having a grand mall seizure at her feet and she couldn't celebrate. She had to wait for the ambulance to get him off the ground to take him to the hospital. 
That must that must have been difficult for you because that was the one person you really wanted to share that good news with and celebrate that particular day. And I know that was difficult for her too because obviously she was, obviously her mind was on something else that very moment in time, although she did celebrate the good news with you, but not to the extent that you would have been, you wanted. So what was the next step then? I mean, I know the Innocence Project were involved. So what's the next step? I got turned down by every major Innocence Project in the world, in America at that time. In fact, I'm one of their greatest failures. That's why I could never work with them and I can't get support from them. Imagine you have to be turned down by these groups and then when you get out, you can't join them. They can't help you. In fact, you're the biggest mistake that they made. So I end up in this weird situation where after I'm proven innocent by DNA, there was nobody outside protesting for me. I had to wait. And... They became sinister. They took me off the death row. They took all of my books and literature and artwork, and they put me in a mental uh, unit and strip cell, and they left me in there for the next eight months. And at that stage, are you technically exonerated, or do you need... I, I don't know how it works, and maybe you can explain it to me. Do you have to be officially exonerated by the state or is it just literally at that moment in time, as far as the state is concerned, you're not guilty? Do you have to go back to court again? How did that all work out or how does that work out? You have to go through a process where the county court that originally convicted you and sentenced you, you to die brings you before them while they're crapping their pants and they're praying that you don't say anything horrible so that they can tell you they are uh, dismissing the charges against you. To get to that moment, I had to have numerous visits from the police and others who would come to the prison and ask me all kinds of questions. Where where are you going to live when you get out? Are you going to kill us for what we did to you and your family? Um... How will you live? All these questions. Mm. I suppose some of it is out of genuine care, but the rest of it is just because they're worried about themselves. And you know what I answered them with? I said, why don't you focus on helping the victim now? You cheated her all these years out of justice. How about you worry about her? I'll go away and I'll try and heal. I know I'm being told as I'm being released that I only have three years to live. My liver was failing at that time so badly that I was told that I'd have to have a liver transplant, 100%. So I thought I had three years to live and I was just going to be the sweetest, nicest person. So I tried to forgive him. I walked into court in December of 2003, seven months after the DNA came back. And I said to them, look, I'm sorry that you have to hate me and fear me. I don't want to hate and fear you. I don't want you to think that this is all that my life is or will be. And that I want to focus on helping Mrs. Craig. Can someone please help her? 
And do they? I, I know you protested outside the district attorney, attorney's office when you did get eventually get released because you wanted your DNA sent to the FBI. I'm sorry for talking over you, but yes, they let me down. They didn't keep their word. They came to me with a folder that said the Nicholas Harris homicide investigation. I said, excuse me, I'm alive and well. That's the Linda May Craig homicide file. You dare not ever do that to me again. And then they told me it was none of my business. I said, no, it is my business. I paid for the villain who did this. So I got a bullhorn. There's a movie in America on the Showtime Network called After Innocence. And what I did was I got that bullhorn and I went to the courthouse and I stood in front of the courthouse every Monday at the noon break. And I protested about how they were not helping this woman. That wasn't fair. How dare you set me free from the DNA you then refused to enter in the DNA data bank because you're worried about a multi-million dollar settlement against me? See if they, their rationale was, if we solve this case with DNA, Nick Yaris gets $100 million, no question, it's not him. But if we don't put the DNA in the data bank and catch the actual murder of Linda May Craig, we can still have wiggle room. I got a bullhorn. I said, no, you won't. And in America, if, or indeed in most countries, I imagine you do get compensated. If you just spent 22 years of your life, and not just in jail, but in solitary, in, you know, and, and have your life destroyed like that and death row, do you get compensated if indeed you're proven no. not to have committed the crime? There is no compensation in Pennsylvania for what they did to me. Even Texas gets it right. They give you compensation for life. They do this to your life. I'm entitled to nothing. That's crazy. I live in the car that I'm talking to you. I have no bank account. I've just been living off of doing podcasting and uh, accepting gratuities for my work. I've tried doing landscaping, but I'm 62, and I've got multitudes of broken bones off my body, so I'm not doing well with that. So... At this stage, I'm doing the best that I can while I'm waiting for good. I can't believe that you can spend 22 years in jail for something you didn't do and not get compensated. That doesn't make any sense. That I mean, the state, the state did that to you by well, rushing the case. That, Listen to me. It's gone well past that. I've been out here for night, excuse me, it's all sweaty and hot here. Finally, the UK heats up, right? <laughs> um, I've been out here for 19 years. I've experienced uh, every trauma that everyone else goes through, from divorce, loss of love, uh, infidelity, betrayal, theft. My daughter dying in my arms at six months old. My dog dying. I've had every horrible thing done to me. I gave away my possessions in America to get away from living in a national forest. This doesn't end. This doesn't stop. When you've been chased by a helicopter, and when you've been on the FBI's most wanted list, and you've been through this thing, it never ends. It didn't stop the day that they sent me to death, and it didn't stop the day that they set me free. My life has been nothing but a roller coaster, 
And it's been a fascinating journey to me that tragic, I've used. But it's a tragic journey. It's a, yeah. It is. I mean, I'm using neuroplasticity healing to actually be so well adapted at navigating all of this that I'm able to traverse anything and handle it. Literally. You're an unbelievable person in the sense that I don't know how most people would handle the tragedy you've had in your life. Now, there's nobody suggesting for a minute when you were a young teenager that you weren't the most innocent person in the world. You know that. You've had a bad background. You probably got into trouble for a lot of petty crimes you were responsible for. But to be put in jail, you know, for such a heinous crime of murder and rape that you didn't actually do, and then to go through everything you went through, I couldn't imagine what it's like to be like in a penitentiary in America. It's not a pretty place. And to have to mix with the individuals, including Ted Bundy and people like that, that were in there, these hardened individuals who made your life hell, I imagine, and that you, in, in return, had to make their life hell as well, to, to live up to what you're supposed to be in jail. To get released from that, to get exonerated, and then for them not to even bother to find the real killer because it might cost them money to do that and compensate you. And then you're expected just to move on with your life. And that's just it. Off you go now. That's, that's to me, that's mind-blowing. I, I went from sitting in my parents' basement on that first night to 10 months later, I was addressing a combined session of the Lower House of Commons here in England. I then went on to speak to four more national governments throughout Europe. I developed an economic platform to answer what was done to me. I took the eloquent route. I wrote my first book, Seven Days to Live. I went on and uh, really going forward, became a dynamic speaker. I went around the world teaching and healing people with neuroplasticity, understanding and getting people to understand what PTSD erasing can happen, how it does happen, and how you can move on from whatever trauma you've been through. I've never had one psychiatric counseling session in all of the time I've been set free. I've done very well for myself, and I've lost everything, and now I'm coming back. And did the I state, did the American state ever pay for psychiatric treatment for you, for counseling, or any backup or support after you, or was it just a case of off you go now there's your bag bye-bye no when i first got out i had to go to the sex clinic in philadelphia to get blood work done to monitor the hepatitis c in my system at that time thank god it's all gone but that was the only way i could get medical treatment was going to a sex clinic and telling them i have a person a possible std and then they would do free blood work I was told that I couldn't go to politicians' offices and be seen with them because it was an election year and no one wanted to be held responsible or thought to be responsible for my downfall. And um, what made you then want to move? Because you moved then to the UK. I, I know you spent, you mentioned a few minutes ago, you ended up in a relationship, you got divorced, et cetera, et cetera. But what made you want to move to the UK? You just had enough of America. I... I live in a city with 500 murders a year called Philadelphia. I had to get out of there. I was walking the streets at night. After the tour is over, after you've been on the Globe stage in London, 
while there's performances of Titus or whatever, wherever you've been, like I did big venues like the, the uh, Coliseum in Rome and these mind blowing events. And then I go back to walk in the streets of Philadelphia at night. I couldn't stay and I didn't feel safe. So I went back to England and I started my life here. And I can tell you honestly what it's like in America. There's never a street you're on that doesn't have a gun on it. Never. Mm -hmm. Think sorry. about that now. Yeah, no, I, I, I Every imagine. single street in America has a gun. This is why it's so rampant with violence. It's just not to people who are killed by gunshots. It's the 52,000 people a year who are, uh, are shot in addition to that person who does die. Twenty-five or 30,000 people a year are dying more than that every day by murder. Philadelphia literally has 500 murders a, a year in one city. I, 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 I looked at that and I said, I don't feel like I belong here. And I left for the United Kingdom. And how are you now? I mean, here we are now. You're in your 60s now. As you said, you can't work because you have so many broken bones. But how do you feel now? Are you angry still? I have CTE brain. No, of course not. I have CTE brain injury. In 2021 and 22, I went through nine months of treatment in California to have my brain scan because I have the cumulated effect of what's called um, chronic traumatic uh, in I don't want to say encephalitis because that's not correct. It's enscopoly. So um, basically, I have a plaque buildup on the left rear of my head and the right, right front. Yeah. So I'm susceptible to a lot of things that people with brain trauma have in that I had to change my diet. I'm trying to stay valid by speaking to others, but I'm not supposed to be alone, right? Uh, however, I'm homeless, single, living on my own in England, having everything just fallen apart again recently, and I'm in transition. So what can I do? Use all the teachings from death row and just hold on, right? Yeah. And and your relationship is finished now. You, you ended up getting divorced. And you're yeah. literally, are you living in your car now? I am. Yeah. So. And is there I mean, why are you, I, it's a silly question really, but why are you living in your car? I'm assuming there is some support financially in the United Kingdom for you. Is there anywhere no, that you can live at all? No. I'm not entitled to any benefits. America has a reciprocal situation with uh, the United Kingdom where I am entitled to indefinite leave to remain, but I'm not entitled to any benefits. I'm not entitled to social security from the United States government because I didn't contribute. I was in prison on my whole life. Wow. So that's a penalty against me. And Nick, so, if, it's not, if it's not a personal matter, did you get any money at all from the United States government? All right. So what happened was I hired a lawyer in 2005 and I settled with the Delaware County authorities at the time that the exchange rate was 1.9 to the U.S. dollar in 2008. 
the attorney took $1.3 million of my settlement and I ended up with 750,000 pounds in total. I then went to divorce, lost everything. Uh, I um, spent over 200,000 pounds on legal uh, fees trying to hold on to my daughter, Laura, Rebecca Yaris, who I haven't seen now in 10 years. So I got sucked dry by my efforts to try and be valid in my daughter's life by a very unfair UK system. So I left the United Kingdom in 2012 and I went to America to have a movie made about my life only to have it end disastrously. The film, The Fear of 13 came out in 2015. My wife left me for a younger man. I was blindsided by them having all this relationship behind my back. I get it, you know. Yeah. Um, I then came back to the United Kingdom. I wrote a book called uh, Monsters and Mad Men. I thought I'd just go ahead and put my work out there again. And I got another movie deal. And I went back to the United States in 2017 with the producers who just released the film Sound of Freedom. So Alejandro did extremely well at the moment, that movie, actually, yeah. Yeah, so they promised to make my movie in the forthcoming uh, year. So whenever that gets off the ground, because they have another project ahead of mine, who knows, but at least I'm in bed with Angel Studios and what they're doing now is huge. They have the number one film in the world. So who knows, maybe that'll come about soon. In the meantime, I decided to move again and... I got my sights set on Ireland, and my dream is to have a nighttime radio show to talk to people. I mean, in the I, I can see, I can see you, Ireland, Nick. I can see you being the midnight caller. I, I want to be it. That would yeah. Be, yeah, that would be even a great title, isn't it? Yeah, talk to the midnight caller. Mm, I, I can see that all right because well, I know you. You've a lot of knowledge, and you've a lot of knife life well, knowledge. We're at the highest parts right now of suicide. It's unbelievable. University level to the working level. With Sinead O'Connor and people like Robin Williams and others who are so well-to-do, we can never imagine them killing themselves or going through that kind of trauma. So it shows that across the spectrum, everyone's affected by mental health issues. That's why I have a friend of mine who's coming here on the 21st of this month. His name is Alex. Alex is a miracle. I met Alex three years ago when he was uh, telling me about his story of living with a rare form of cancer that has killed everyone within diagnosis within six months. He's now lived with his cancer for 10 years. One of the things about him is he went to Scotland and he felt alive. He went back home and did a genetic study on his blood and found out he is genetically Scottish, and that's what he wants to do. My friend wants to come here and meet me and keep a promise that we made while standing before the Pacific Ocean in Oregon three years ago. And I've been keeping him going. Now, I'm going to share the video trailer about the film that we're making about Alex. And the title of the project is called why don't you just kill yourself? It's called that because people have had the cheek to ask my friend after he explains to him how they cut his leg apart 
and did all this horrible thing to him, and he holds on. And that's why he won't kill himself. It's, it's a kind of, when you think about it, it's kind of uh, the, the, the contradiction in the title of the book or the title of the movie, uh, Why Don't You Just Kill Yourself? I think people understand the contradiction of that. And, and that is something that people would, would maybe say so to people beautiful. who are on a terminal illness or so of some description. And, and you know, there's always hope. Always hope. Do you have hope? By the way, Nick, do you have hope? Do you still have hope? Or have you lost all hope? A young man, a young man just had his baby born for the last six months. I've been keeping him from his anxiousness. He has a disorder. Yeah. For the last six months, I've helped people not kill themselves. Um, okay, so I come, I give away all my possessions in America. I gave my RV to a family with a handicapped child, and I came back to America, England. In the time that I've been back since March, I've reached over 190 million people from podcasts and television and everything, right? Every day of my life, I'm helping someone. I'm living what Walt Whitman opined. Upon this day, what good have I just done? Every day I do good. Well, even people listening to this, you know, I mean, people think sometimes their life is not going too good. And, you know, when they hear the story of your life and how difficult life can really be when you get into a really bad, tragic situation, I suppose some of us will thank our blessings, you know, that maybe our life has got a bit better than we imagined. We always think our life is not going as well as it should. But I, I'm, I'm interested to know your future. I mean, if I said to you, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Do you, do you have a vision of 10 years ahead? Can you see yourself in 10 years from now? It's so apropos that you asked me that question. Seven years ago, you and I met. That's right. I spoke to you on the radio about seven years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. It was a long time ago. I came to Dublin. You had the TV show back then. You remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If so I, if, if I had have asked you that question seven years ago, would you? where do you see yourself in seven years? You wouldn't have seen yourself sitting in a car in the middle of the UK, homeless. Maybe you would have thought there'd been something yeah, more positive than that. But all right, so look at the trajectory of my life. I went from your show to uh, to Switzerland to address the Human Rights Council. The moment I met you, there's people between the two of us whose lives were changed. I can prove that to you. I know that one personally. You see, it wasn't the gift that you see coming at you that you'll ever know about that could be so much more important in your life. When I met you, I was doing a book tour about the re-release of my book, Seven Days to Live, that became another title and blah, yeah. blah, blah. I went in that journey with you and I touched people's lives that to this day are profoundly rewarding me back. I don't need riches. I don't need a palace to have a message. And I get it. People are more willing to listen to me and trust and open up to me because I actually live my message, don't I, sir? You know how hard my life is, and yet I, I am know. extremely polite, kind, and loving every day 
because I can't let people down. I can't let myself down. You've been on Joe Rogan as well. You've been on many big shows around the world. That You must have had a huge reaction after being on Joe Rogan. is the biggest podcast, obviously, in the world. Um, you must have had a huge reaction and interest in your life from other people. Yeah, I mean, one of the greatest kudos of my life was Jeff Bridges, the actor, Chris Pine, and Ben Foster, three of the most dynamic, beautiful actors in Hollywood, are being interviewed about what they watch on television. When Chris Pine turns to the camera and says, oh, my God, do you know who Nick Yaris is? Have you heard about the fear of 13? And then I go and meet him in Hollywood. Like, it goes crazy like that. I, The beautiful state, uh, Tony Robbins, the world-renowned speaker, and his beautiful wife, Sage Robbins, tried their best to help the movie about my life get made. But COVID wiped all that out. So you, you can, I have this really crazy thing where I'm sitting down with Tim Robbins, the actor for whom everyone knows about the Shawshank Redemption, and have a man come up to me and do nothing but give me millions of platitudes about being on Joe Rogan and doesn't even say hello to Tim. So what a moment. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So getting, getting back finally to that question about 10 years' time. Can you see yourself in 10 years' time? I, I'm not suggesting, obviously, that you're some sort of psychic. Here's where I look at it. All right. I am determined to become one of the only people who can live long-term with a cognitive degenerative brain injury and have all of my functions. I am going to go forward with this television show, a fictionalized television crime drama I just created that is brilliant and as good as Better Call Saul or is as good as The Sopranos or is just as good as Breaking Bad. I am going to have a stage play in Dublin and throw my hat in the ring against Shelley and Keats and all the greats. And I am going to perform beautifully. I am going to achieve my goals because I've already paid for all of my tolls. Well, I wish you well on that. And I think you're a very determined person. I think you'll eventually get out of that car and get what you want in Dublin. And I and I really hope you do, because I think you deserve it. I think you've paid for any of the bad things you may have done when you were younger. You've paid for it dearly, by the way, with such a tragic life. And I, I believe that you deserve to be rewarded at some point in your life for all the bad stuff that's happened. You keep giving me rewards right now. You don't get it now. You love me for who I am. That's the greatest gift any of us wants. You see, there are so many hurt people listening to you right now, and I speak, and no one gives them this. They need it just as much as I do. God bless them. I get that. And I wish to God I could just reach out to your audience and tell them, I love you. I love you for being that nice person who helps someone at the laundromat, or does those nice things. Sir, you can only see the scars and the embattlements that I've been pushed to just survive from. I see the beauty in it all. I'm one of the luckiest 
most profound men you will ever meet. I have that gift. I have this beautiful, inordinate gift of being alive, no matter how tough it is. And I'm willing to give every day of my life nothing but good. Everything else has already been taken. On that note, Nick, I got to thank you very much indeed once again for joining us. It's been a pleasure, as it was on the other two occasions I spoke to you, uh, going back when we originally met back in 2016, I think it was. And, yeah. uh, and I think there was some time in the middle as well, probably. <laughs> and it's been a pleasure once again. And I wish you well in the future. And I hope to pay for a ticket to see you on stage in Dublin's Gaiety Theatre. So listen, thank you very much indeed. And I wish you well. And I hope, I, I, I can only hope that you get everything that you want for the rest of your life, for whatever's left of your life, uh, to make up Same for all to those you, losses. Young. Same to you now. I really wish you all the best. I'll have to come to Dublin and meet you in Ireland and we'll have a wonderful sit-down. We will. And in the meantime, <laughs> people don't know this, but off-screen, and you've been an absolute, genuinely nice person and a kind friend, and I want people to know that you're actually a good-hearted person in person, and I'm really grateful that we're friends. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Podcast. Listen live on Facebook, YouTube, and all the usual live stream services. To get in touch, just WhatsApp or text 085-100-2255. The Nile Boylan Podcast. They told me to shut up. Available for download from all your usual platforms. 